You're listening to the I Love You Keep Going podcast with George Haas. For more information, please visit our website at www.metagroup.org. That's www.m-e-t-t-a-g-r-o-u-p.org. So welcome, everybody. This is I Love You Keep Going. It is February 2nd, 2023 at 7.35 p.m. Pacific Time. And uh, I thought that I would talk about the 84 meditations this week, and then I would talk about the divine abodes as a concentration practice uh, next week. And we're sort of putting them together under the heading of always cool, always kind, as a, as a way of uh, clumping the way that these particular meditation strategies are uh, put together. Mainly, the 84 Meditations was put together as a way of introducing an integrated Metavipassana practice, but also as a uh, platform to begin to understand mentalizing and emotional regulation and to uh, to train yourself to be able to uh, do that. So, we begin really with 84 Meditations with just basic concentration using breath practice um, and increasing the difficulty of the of the breath practice what we're looking to do with that is to reach access concentration access concentration is a level of concentration where you can be effective in your meditation practice without getting distracted by all of the things that typically distract um <clears throat> Um, when I was a, a, a new student in this way of practicing, um, I went to a class at Ordinary Dharma, so this would be in 1992. Um, I had been doing more um, esoteric practices, but probably not very well. I was, uh, what I came to learn, uh, uh, the term for the way that I was, was uh, a Dharma orphan. So a Dharma orphan is somebody who doesn't have a teacher, who uses books and other kinds of things to be able to to teach themselves how to meditate. But because uh, it, it, it comes from the source of reading, you find a book here or a book there, or a practice here or a practice there. And because in the West, we've kind of homogenized um, the uh, different lineages and the different uh, ways of practicing you could be grabbing, which I was doing, something from the Tibetan, something from the Zen, something Theravada, something from the kind of New Age uh, spirituality. Um, and I, and it was a wonderful, actually, uh, way to be introduced to this because there are so many variations so many ideas. But when I came to LA and and I uh, moved here without really knowing anybody um, that well, I thought uh, that a good way to start building a social life would be to enter into some kind of community. And so the meditation community was what I tried. And in the beginning, the the way that I was practicing didn't really make that great a discernment between thinking 
and entertaining myself by thinking and actually meditating uh, so that I could sit for long periods of time doing that kind of practice and and uh, feel you know fairly energized at the end of it. But when I started to do the breath counting strategy, it, it, it appeared to me like an agony. Uh, as I uh, joked before, I would sit there and I would white knuckle it as long as I possibly could. I would open my eyes and three minutes would have gone by. And I would think that that was outrageous. And I would close my eyes again to sit as long as I possibly could. And I would endure it to the end of my capacity and I'd open my eyes and two more minutes would have gone by. <laughs> and, uh, you know, breathing in, counting one, breathing out, counting one, just basic breath counting. Um, but, you know, uh, if you uh, persevere, that initial wall of impossibility at five minutes moves out a few minutes, and then a few more minutes, and then it's 15 minutes that you're able to sit and then 20 minutes, then 25 minutes, then uh, as the walls keep falling down, you can sit for longer and longer periods. Christian? This might seem like a strange question, but is there some kind of preliminary practice for breath counting? Like, I know that you build it up from easier breath counting, but like, it, it struck me that you know, there could be some elements of like the second arrow, like the some self-compassion could be necessary if the breath count is, is especially difficult for someone getting into it. Um, not everybody uh, relates well to, to, to breath counting. Um, and um, some people are, are never really able to, to get it, uh, although that number is as a percentage, I would guess is very low, at least in my own personal teaching experience. Most people, uh, breath counting is a, is, a, is a good way to go in the beginning. Um, trying to think of another one. Uh, I sat with some teachers that did a combination of breath counting and slow walking meditation. But I found the slow walking meditation even harder to do than the breath counting meditation. Uh, I'm a dyspraxic, and so I don't really have a good sense of balance anyway. And so the slow walking meditation, I, I just kept falling, and it wasn't uh, that helpful, and it was irritating. And uh, the, the, the same anger at myself for being so clumsy uh, was amplified by the slow walking meditation. So that, that actually didn't work so well. Jake? George, I was just curious, have you ever tried to pick back up on the slow walking meditation? Did you ever see any improvements with it? Or is it just something you never return to the walking meditation as a whole, or particularly the slow walking? No, I've, I've done uh, endless hours of slow walking meditation. When we were uh, in Myanmar at the, in Pinu Luin at the monastery, there was a track around the outside, which in doing the meta walking meditation would take about 20 minutes to go around the monastery. And in the slow walking, it took about four hours. Uh, and so we would do this long four hour slow walk around the, med the meditation center. 
my balance isn't any better, but my sense of humor about falling over is better. <laughs> um, you know, some people use sports. One of the things I've noticed is that dancers can do the counting without any struggle at all, or swimmers can do it, or some kind of uh, um, athletic endeavor where you have to be able to count, like swimmers count the length of strokes to get across the pool so they know when to turn and hit the wall and come back. They can do it usually. So any any kind of practice really that you find that it has the capacity to begin to develop concentration can be usable. Uh, the question is how can we fit that into a, a, a community meditation set where we're a, a gathering where we're all practicing together, which can create a kind of momentum uh, we're all empathetic to the degree that we are. And when we sit together in meditation, of course, we're having an empathetic experience of other people meditating, which helps propel us through the limitations. Whereas uh, at sitting alone at home after five minutes of, of white knuckling it, I would just get up and abandon the meditation where uh, socially speaking, it would be too humiliating to abandon it after five minutes in a group setting. So I would have to continue on. And then you see, of course, that the barriers are only the barriers in your mind. And that once you push past them, you can push past more of them. Uh, one of the reasons that I like the uh, long sitting practices, the duration sitting practices, is you push through all of those uh, barriers that come up in the mind and then you can really sit uh, as long as you want to without uh, much resistance, or at least not resistance enough to get you up and out of the meditation practice. So counting in and out breath and counting only on the out breath, uh, counting up and down. One of the things that we did at Ordinary Dharma was we would count up and down to 25. This would take about a half an hour to do, but one, two, one, one, two, three, two, one, one, two, three, four, three, two, one, one, two, three, four, five, four, three, two, one, one, two, three, four, five, six, five, four, three, two, one, up to 25, back down to one in that sort of slow building progression, which did build quite a bit of concentration and also had the, uh, the, uh, the machismo aspect of meditation practice, which can be... <laughs> important to propel you forward jake i'm just curious george at what point going along in your practice did you get introduced to the notion of not self and at what point did it did it dawn on you experientially and is that something that you feel comfortable introducing to people right away because i noticed that it, you don't do that but what what's your sense of that um the no self notion was presented quite early in practice and it was something that was uh i could grasp intellectually pretty well uh some of the self inquiry uh, practices of see if you can find the center of the self in the body located in the body and, and then some of the inventory practices is the sense of self located in your left foot it located in your left calf is it located in your left leg going through an inventory like that in the body um, 
But in terms of any real uh, understanding uh, and penetrating the 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 sort of Herculean grasping around the sense of self, uh, took much longer. And actually, I don't think that I actually I could uh, concretely experience that in ha until having gotten through uh, the dissolution phase of the the practice. So that beginning piece of practice where you're really uh, locating sensitivity to the sensing capacities, uh, beginning to understand the nature of mind and how it, it collects the information that you use to, to create conceptual reality. Um, and then you begin to notice the conditionality of things, that the, the present moment sets up the next moment in this unfolding cascade of experience and the choices that you make in terms of how you create the present moment sets up the next present moment and you can begin to track all of that and then the third stage in the theravada model is the investigations of the three characteristics one of which is not or self one of the things about householder practice is that we're so often in the need of an activated self-experience in order to navigate the world that we're in. Uh, it's very, the, the times when no self uh, is a possible is extremely limited, I think. If you're around other people, you constantly have to generate a sense of self in order to be in relationship to them. So it's more like a dimmer switch in the beginning. The sense of self is bright or the sense of self is quite dim. We all probably have these periods of high concentration where uh, we lose track of self, we lose track of the formulation of time. Have you ever been concentrating on a task and looked up and noticed that an hour has gone by and it seems uh, like only a moment has gone by, which is the the, the opposite of sitting for three minutes and trapped in the harshness of a, a an afflictive self-experience and not being able to bear much more than that. Is that making sense? <clears throat> so in the third stage, which is the beginning practice, of course, uh, touching into the first investigation of the sense of self, touching into the first understanding of the nature of impermanence, and then uh, touching into the the nature of the human condition and what that experience is like. <clears throat> I'm 70 now, so I have a greater sense of the the mortality of the body and also a greater sense of uh, the uh, diminishing capacities of the body, but this was completely unknowable to me when I was younger because... I still had the sense of, of I could go on like this for a long time. You know, you get uh, past youth, which sort of ends around 30, uh, and th that, that experience of growing and the capacities growing and everything just getting more and more uh, capable uh, comes to an end and you begin the, the aging process, but it's pretty slow in the beginning. <laughs> you know, uh, when I turned 30, one of my friends gave me a big pot of uh, moisturizer and she wrote on the top, you're not a chicken anymore. 
you know, putting on your creams and all the different things that one does to, to try and slow, not aging, but the perception that you have of your body aging. And, uh, and then, of course, you get past your 40s into your 50s and old age kicks in and, it, and it's, uh, there's an adjustment there because it's undeniable. And then, of course, you get past your 60s and uh, it accelerates even more. Christian? Do you think there will be a point to all this sitting around and counting your breath and smelling your farts when they get the stem cells and then everyone's not aging anymore? Um, I have more hope for the singularity where we just all upload ourselves into a computer. Oh. <laughs> Although, how so, attached are you to life in a body, right? Even the bad parts of it. Would you rather uh, be a computer program or would you rather be a body that actually is alive, living? I have to say, uh, being a computer program has pretty much zero appeal to me. It makes no sense at all. I'd much rather uh, be in a body, but I have no contrast. I've not been a computer program to know whether that, that has more appeal. Um, <clears throat> once you, you get into, uh, through that first part of, of exploring the characteristics, you get into the fourth stage, which is the impermanent stage, the arising and passing stage, where you begin to move out of the conception of everything being solid into this flow of energy. And that's, uh, uh you get a taste of that um, dissolving and coming together, dissolving and coming together. But it really isn't until you get into the fifth stage, uh, in, or at least my experience of it, when the ba the barrier between inside and out dissolves and there's simply energy and consciousness that the, the, the identity uh, uh, of the body being the self begins to give way and you can be free of that. Of course, it's terrifying because it also points out how tightly gripped most of us get to identifying ourselves as, as this body and identifying ourselves uh, to our thoughts and what we think. And when all of that goes away and the consciousness is still there, then you have the opportunity to, to really see into that. But it's that, that really it still is that the beginning of practice, or that would be the end of the beginning of practice, that you'd move into the intermediate part of practice. In the way that the 84 meditations are designed, you do the breath counting so that you can develop enough concentration that you can then practice uh, the Brahma Viharas, the divine abodes, as uh, a jhana practice or a high concentration practice so that you use the development of high concentration uh, on uh, objects like loving kindness or compassion or sympathetic joy or equanimity. The reason that we do that uh, in this set is because we want uh, people to begin to understand and track the way that they mentalize the experience 
of self and world. Uh, we use uh, the Peter Fonicky Anthony Bateman model as the source material, but we had, we've, we've adapted it in, in a way so that it that it works as a meditation practice primarily. That you're monitoring spontaneity versus um, so spontaneity versus monitoring, and then self versus other, internal versus external, cognitive versus effective, and the first part of the the practice is organized around mentalizing um, thinking and emotion because we need to be able to regulate our emotions not only for uh, secure functioning but we also need to be able to regulate our emotion uh, so that we can go uh, deep into our meditation practice when you come out of the loving kindness practice uh, and you're able to track mind states or views uh, this is a fundamental understanding that we need uh, when we pursue deep meditation practice but it's also very useful in terms of understanding how our conditioning affects the way that we present we create the experience of ourselves and creates the experience of the world we create our sense of self by activating all of these gists or these little algorithms that create sensing experiences that when they're activated we recognize that pattern of uh, sensing experience as a representation of ourselves and we create these working models for other people and other situations and when they activate uh, we recognize that pattern and identify it as someone else. <clears throat> because these little gists or these little programs that make up the working model can be tracked, we can then begin to explore the nature of our conditioning. Why are these particular uh, gists or patterns associated with the working model of ourselves and the working model of other people? Uh, Part of which is, of course, what we we expect to have happen, uh, what we expect uh, we can get out of the experience of being alive. And if we can't recognize that these filters are in place, we don't notice that the options that we have in front of us are quite uh, varied and um, more expansive than what we can see due to the limita limiting nature of these views. Is that making sense? So in the moment, what is in front of you is all of the choices, all of the possibilities that you could choose. And then if a view comes into place, only the, one, only the options that are permitted through the view are seen it begins to limit uh, the choices that we make to the to these sets, these patterns. Uh, samsara is the word for that. We choose over and over again the same kind of responses to situations, not because there aren't other responses that we could choose, but we can't recognize them to know to choose them. And so what we want to begin to do is recognize these views are in place so that we can push them aside and see more clearly what's actually happening. 
and then change uh, the way that we choose the, what's going to be created uh, in the next moment as conceptual reality. So the early part of the loving kindness practice is organized around high concentration states, but also in recognizing views or mind states. Uh, and then as that practice deepens, recognizing how those views or mind states change the perception of conceptual reality so that we can see whether the mind is equanimous or is in some way distorted by a view that we're holding. Is that making sense? Then what we want to do is <clears throat> begin to understand the nature of our thinking and how that affects the emotional experience that we're having. And so we move out of the concentrated oriented loving kindness practice into an insight practice which monitors our thinking process. So we track uh, auditory thinking space. We start there because most people are auditory thinkers. Shinzen is uh, often used the 70-30, 70% 70% are visual thinkers. The reason that I made the book Punch-Outs was for the visual thinkers so that they could get a grasp on that because I, I do uh, think that we don't uh, teach much in a visual way so that visual thinkers are often having to figure it out uh, through the auditory process. Uh, auditory thinking, visual thinking come together and then when you add uh, emotion to it, it, that's what creates the sense of realness to it. Um, I was in film school in the, the early 70s, and so uh, I'm sure they're using a different example now than they did then, but uh, they showed the shower scene from Hitchcock's Psycho. First, they showed it all together, sound, picture, music auditory, visual, emotional. Uh, and then they pulled it apart. They showed just the visual. It wasn't frightening at all. In fact, it looked rather clumsily edited uh, when you looked at just the picture. And then they added the sound effect. But that also didn't make it frightening. It didn't make it particularly real. And then they added the violin music, which made it terrifying. I don't know if you remember that. There was a total visceral response in the body that was completely absent in picture only and in uh, sound and picture only. So one of the, this combination of auditory and visual thinking and the emotion in the body is when they come together is the thing that really creates this sense of realness. So we need to track that. And then we need to begin to understand that we react to the present moment uh, emotionally. If the experience of the present moment exceeds our capacity to hold the experience, so using Dan Siegel's metaphor, the window of tolerance, if the emotional reaction to the present moment exceeds the window of tolerance, then we need to regulate that experience. And we tend to do that as adults by thinking. And we all have different strategies that we think about the situation that we're in that's meant to help us regulate it. 
And here is where we have to examine whether we're using a beneficial strategy or an afflictive strategy. And most of us have not examined the, the system of emotional regulation that we do, the, the thinking system. Um, we've all basically picked up the strategies in our family system and we continue to use them. And because they came online really before autobiographical memory came online, we've always been using them. So there's really never been much need to question them. We watch how the adults in the family that we're in regulate themselves. If we have over, older siblings, we watch how they interpret the presentation that the, the adults are giving, and then we take them on. But some of them are going to be beneficial. Some of them are going to be afflictive. If you haven't done the examination, you want to suppress the afflictive ones uh, and emphasize the positive ones. But if you suppress the afflictive ones, you're going to have deficits in your, your range of emotional regulation skills. And that's where we need to begin to develop alternatives. And so we have the noting feeling states technique and the, the love and kindness techniques that we are training to use as emotional regulation replacements when we have a, uh, a, an afflictive strategy that we want to begin to set down. We explore four kinds of emotional experience, the present moment reaction, self-generated emotions through thinking, somaticized emotional experience, which is uh, where emotions that have exceeded the window of tolerance and ex exceeded our capacity to regulate are then dissociated and stored in the body. And also uh, empathetic uh, emotional experience, so the, the ability to track the emotional experience of others that we experience in the body. Um, if you don't have really good clarity on them, they all tend to clump together and then you have one emotional experience, but it can be very reactive. You can be reacting to the present moment. You can dump intense self-generated emotion on there and then the somaticized emotion can react to that. So something in the present moment is a level two and causes self-generated emotion at a level three, a resonance from the pool at a level four. So you're reacting at a level nine to a situation that everyone around you thinks it's a level two. And then they think you're overreacting because they can't see the internal system that you have operating. So if you've ever had the experience of somebody claiming that you're overreacting. Um, this is the, the, that mix-up of uh, different regulating strategies that you have happening. So we need to develop sensory clarity. The Vipassana system or the insight system is really pulling apart everything and seeing the individual pieces and then beginning to manage them. Most children are dissociative, so you could create the experience of emotional centers or emotional pools, somaticized emotion in the body in childhood. Most uh, people, when they move from childhood into adulthood, resolve the dissociation as a emotional regulation uh, strategy. And so they don't tend to feed the pools as much. But people who use dissociation in some capacity to regulate their present moment experience tend to have uh, um, pools that are quite deep in terms of uh, the energies that's there. So we begin to learn to 
release the somaticized emotional experience so that we can get that energy back and also develop um, more beneficial strategies for emotional regulation. This is when we then begin uh, the process of uh, a deeper investigation of self. Uh, in, in the dimensions of mentalizing that we're training during this process, we have the spontaneity versus monitoring, we have self versus other, we have internal versus external, and we have cognitive versus effective. So this whole first part of the practices that we that I've been describing are really focused mainly on the spontaneity versus monitoring and the cognitive versus effective. We move into a see, hear, feel practice, which is Shinzen's uh, work, um, beginning to pull apart the sense gates and then we move into a focus in, focus out strategy where we're uh, tracking external sense inputs from internal sense inputs. And that's really developing the mentalizing capacity of internal versus external. So internal, the stimuluses are internal and in external, they're, they're coming from the outside. So sound or light or temperature or touch internal uh, uh, thinking processes or sensations that create reactions. Is that making sense? In internal and external, you, of course, you create the sense of the internal working model of what's actually happening, and then you also project it out there. So you take in the ultimate reality, the data, you uh, process it, that is to say, you form it into uh, meaningful um, representations, and then those are projected outward, another aspect of internal and external. How do you project it outward? And uh, there's a lot of agency if you're clear about what it is that's happening. You have an internal understanding of what's happening, and then uh, an understanding of what an effective way to express that would be. Uh, touching into ultimate reality and comparing it to conceptual reality to understand whether it's a good representation or not. Sometimes you can distort it in a beneficial way, which is the experiences of the Brahma Viharas inclining the mind toward positive states intentionally. And then self versus other. So see here, feel in in its aggregates then come together and the whole focus in constellation internal uh, auditory internal visual and uh, emotion in the body uh, is the elements that really create a strong self experience and then external sight external sound and the external experience uh, of the world interacting with the body touch is what creates a sense of the world out there so you begin to practice as the whole constellation of focus in and the whole constellation of focus out so that you begin to develop the mentalizing capacities of self and other and internal and external. Is that making sense? So that's the, the range of the 84 meditations. There is also built into it a lot of loving-kindness practice for self, 
one of the things that we we need to do is uh, deposit a lot of positivity in association with the working model of self so that when the self experience arises it's an enjoyable pleasant experience when we have a lot of afflictive states associated with the the uh, self experience when we use a lot of afflictive emotional regulation strategies to regulate the experience of self each time the self experience activates we can begin to tire of the negative states that are associated with a sense of self and become averse to them. And that aversion is the root of self-hatred, which we have quite a bit of, I notice in people, and certainly in myself when I first came to practice. I think one of the reasons sitting for five minutes was so difficult was because I held my self-experience with such difficulty because I had sort of turbocharged it with negative uh, strategies, negative regulating strategies. So we come out of that uh, highly negative relationship to the sense of self by embedding positive states of the working model of the sense of self. So each time the sense of self activates, it's a pleasant experience, which is then the root uh, of self-love, the enjoyment of ourselves when that selfing experience arises. Does that make sense? So that's the, the way that, that that progression of meditations is organized. Uh, and uh, we use that to support the movement from insecure, disorganized attachment into earned security because you need those uh, mentalizing elements to be able to shift in that way. You need to be able to track in real time uh, what you are sensing. You need to track in real time how you're interpreting the sensing experience, so the raw sensing experience compared to the perceptual database and then made into something and then projected outward so that you can track whether or not you're making an accurate representation of what you're taking in so that you the way that you respond to uh, the experience of the present moment is actually serves you is actually beneficial what can happen is that we can get trapped in the conditioning and create as part of the experience of the present moment the expectation of what we can get out of it and when you come from insecure, disorganized attachment where uh, getting your needs met was very difficult or impossible and that the way that you were treated was, was uh, much less than optimal, it tends to create an expectation of what you can get out of the present moment in a very distorted and limited way. And that, that distortion is what prevents you from seeing all of the uh, options, all of the choices that are in front of you and confines you to choosing over and over again this from the same limited palette. Is that making sense, Christian? So is, is there a non-distorted view? Is that equanimity or? That would be equanimity. Okay. Now, 
you have your conditioning, that is the, the entries that are in the database that you can recognize patterns of experience, and you have your imagination that fills in novel experiences that you haven't quite interpreted yet. Uh, I don't know about you, but I love novelty. It's one of, one of the things that's very exciting for me to have, have new experiences. So I'm always looking for new experiences. Um, the imagination makes sense of the new experience and creates meaning associated with it. One of the things that happens in childhood, though, for people who have adverse childhood experiences is they begin to pinch off or limit the capacity to imagine things because it's too painful to imagine over and over again in childhood things that you can't have or can't get. And so you simply restrict your desire for them. Um, and so uh, those uh, pinches, as I like to call them, uh, persist uh, even after childhood is over and you're in your, your youth or your adult life. And we need to also investigate that and begin to remove those limiting beliefs, as the Buddhist term for them, so that we can actually see more clearly what's happening and so that the creation of conceptual reality that we make is better more accurate. So you have to do both. But the, the mentalizing training, which is the 84 meditations, is not that removing of the pinches from imagination. That really is done through the ideal parent figure work. Good enough? Um, so I'm always pounding on doing tons of meta for self because you need to embed positive states into uh, the sense of self. So why don't we do some of that uh, so that we can add more and more. Start with an easy person and then shift to uh, practice for self. Go ahead and take your meditation posture. So that's the end of the meditation period. So thanks everybody for coming. Um, we have a level two class starting on February 16th, if that's of interest to you. Um, we're going to be doing a another level one, I think, starting in March. We're going to do a meditation and addiction series in May. I think we have an EU uh, level one also happening. There's the retreat in Utrecht in June. So all of that's up on the website. Take a look. Appreciate your practice. I offer the teaching freely, but we do hope that you'll make a donation. There's a link to make a donation on the website. Any amount is helpful. It helps support me, also the work that we're doing. Um, thanks for your practice. I hope to see you somewhere along the way. Bye now. <laughs>